Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The stranger came in early February, one wintry day, through a biting wind and a driving snow, the last snowfall of the year, over the down, walking as it seemed from Bramblehurst Railway Station and carrying a little black portmanteau in his thickly gloved hand. He was wrapped up from head to foot, and the brim of his soft felt hat hid every inch of his face but the shiny tip of his nose. Can anyone guess the book? It's from H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, 1897. Uh, since that time, it's been made into as many as, a, I don't know, a dozen different films, I suppose, most of which bear little resemblance to the original story beyond that intriguing theme of dis invisibility. Uh, even Abbott and Costello got their chance to meet the Invisible Man in a movie one time. The latest version was released in 2020, over 100 years after the story first appeared. In one film version, right after a night of mischief and murder, the Invisible Man says to a friend, it's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look yourself in the mirror anymore. Oh. You ever thought about what you would do if you were guaranteed no one would ever find out? Would you act differently if you knew that you didn't have to face yourself in the mirror? We've all felt the pull of sin. Unless you grew up in a bubble, we've all encountered that serpent of sin. Maybe you've even felt the hot venom of its poison on your neck. So close. And like the invisible man, I suppose that uh, at one time or another, uh, some of us have uh, felt the sting of its fangs and, and followed some dark desire. To be human is to be tempted. To be human, even Christian, is to sin. And to be human is to lock it away, to keep it from the light. Mark Twain said that God made man at the end of the week when he was tired. <laughs> Maybe that explains it. But even the invisible man would have been reminded by uh, David in our psalm that there's another mirror that even invisibility can't protect us from. It's the mirror of our lives we call our conscience. Rooted as often and not as the, in the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, it's nothing less than the very presence of God who sees everything. That in itself is pretty terrifying. But this morning, I also want you to see that it's also one of God's great blessings because it will constant rem, re, constantly remind us of what we've done uh, relentlessly. If we refuse to acknowledge our deed, thus refusing to receive the grace of God through heartfelt repentance and confession, It'll begin to eat us up from the inside out. The temptation to act in the hope that no one will ever find us out is as old a story as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After all, it was just fruit, not so different from all the other fruit hanging from all the other trees in the Garden of Eden. I suppose. Was it Satan, right, that said uh, when he appeared to Eve in the form of a serpent, remember? Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, that was not really what God said. Might have been what Adam told Eve, God said. But what God told Adam was, you can eat from any tree of the garden uh, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Regardless, Eve hadn't forgotten it. Uh, but the serpent was painting God as demanding and rigid. A God who might say to us, even if we approached him hat in hand repentant, look at you. Every day you're here confessing the same sins. I'm sick of it. If you don't start measuring up, I'm through with you. 
We could totally imagine doing that if we were God, right? Lucky for us, we're not. What Eve did feel, uh, when she did feel sin's fangs bite deep and tasted the forbidden fruit and then shared it with Adam, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they hid themselves from God in their shame. And when God found them out, they turned from shame to blame. Well, their story is our story. We've all taken that plunge into sin, even if it just began with a, a toe to check the temperature, and then gone into hiding from God. We've all made those conscious choices to live beyond God's limits, to cross his boundaries. Choices that sent us east of Eden along with our first parents, living outside the garden, struggling and toiling, battling demons within and without. It sounds like David was in the same boat in our psalm this morning. It's a testimony of truth, a painful reminder and a warning that even in the face of God's grace, sin has consequences, even unconfessed sin. It doesn't matter what you call it. Sin, transgressions, iniquity, uh, failure, trespass, uh, mistakes, or debts. Uh, we can never escape its impact. The, the guilt and the damage to ourselves and, and those around us that accompanies sinful, self-centered deeds. C.S. Lewis said that a little lie is like a little pregnancy. Pretty soon, everybody knows about it. The truth is kind of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater in a pool, isn't it? You know, it won't stay buried. Sooner or later, it's going to pop up. No matter how hard we try to hold it underneath it or sit on it or just ignore it. One of the best examples from literature probably comes from uh, Edgar Allan Poe in his story, The Telltale Heart. It's told in the first person by a man who committed murder. Uh, the story itself is really a confession of sorts. He lived with an old man whom he insists never really did him any harm. It was just that he had an eye that reminded him of the narrator of a vulture, a pale blue vulture eye with a film over it. And that eye made his blood run cold. When he can't stand its veiled gaze falling on him any longer, he plans an elaborate murder. And when the deed is done late one night, the old man's body is hidden beneath the floorboards of the victim's own room. Police are alerted by a neighbor to uh, a noise they heard when the crime was being committed. But when they arrive, the murderer gladly and confidently takes them on a tour of the house, explaining how the old man is simply out in the country. He even invites the police to sit and rest in the very room in which the body lies. As the conversation ensues, the murderer, who takes pride in his acute sense of hearing, begins to catch a faint noise under the, the, beneath the conversation. Lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. Muffled at first and then growing louder and louder until he imagines that it, it must be the beating heart of his victim. He can't understand why the officers are ignoring it. Lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. The noise is unnerving and his anxiety is so overwhelming that the murderer finally blurts out an unsought confession. The old man's telltale heart had found him out. It's just a short story. Read that one and then pose cask of Amontillado some night and you'll be good to go for bed. <laughs> the point is that every one of us here this morning who is a child of God has a telltale heart as, as well. Once the spirit takes up residence there at your baptism, he won't leave you alone until you deal with it. David cries out in the psalm, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, you and I both know that it doesn't really take an unconfessed murder to feel the heavy heart of unconfessed sin, does it? David experienced it. Adam and Eve experienced it. We've all experienced it, and it's not pleasant. And God makes it not pleasant to move us toward the cross. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, David says, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's not an easy place to be, is it? Uh, suffering and yet knowing that the only relief is in confession. Our pride has to take the fall, and we have to admit that we need something or someone you know, beyond ourselves, bigger than ourselves. We have to remove our rose-colored glasses and look at ourselves honestly in our mirror and admit what we've done. The Holy Spirit has the power to break us down spiritually with God's truth. But then he invites us to turn from the mirror of our own reflection to the mirror of God's grace, his undeserved love and mercy, uh, and receive his gift. David says it. And you forgave the guilt, the iniquity of my sin. For David's sake, because he's already uh, suffered and died, to, because Jesus has already suffered and died to pay that price, uh, God will forgive you. It doesn't come easy for us. But then it didn't come easy for Jesus either. John writes in his first letter to the church, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You know, confession is good for the soul is one of those old proverbs that uh, isn't really in the Bible, but sounds like it ought to be. Um, it's actually an old Scottish proverb that really goes, open confession is good for the soul. Admitting to ourselves we've sinned is one thing, but confessing our sins and admitting wrong to the person that we sinned against is another. But repentance and confession can go a long way toward repairing uh, damaged relationships. It's not easy means giving up some control. And that person may or may not be willing to offer their forgiveness yet. They might leave you all vulnerable and just blowing in the wind. But that doesn't make it any less right. Hurt takes time to heal. Trust takes time to rebuild. But it all starts with honest, heartfelt repentance and confession. And never forget that saying I'm sorry to your spouse or a friend or even your children and meaning it is only part of their biblical confession. Anytime we sin at all, we're also sinning against God. And so confession has been a part of the life of the church from the very beginning. John the Baptist's original message was a call to repentance. Jesus' first sermon after his baptism and temptation in the wilderness was repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. During this season of repentance and reflection, our lesson from Luke relates the time that some people came to Jesus about a couple of local tragedies. The first one is about some kind of an attack by Roman Governor Pontius Pilate on some Galileans who were evidently worshiping at the time. The other is about an apparently well-known accident in which a tower fell and killed 18 people in Jerusalem, suddenly and unexpectedly. They wanted to know if it was God's judgment. Were the people who died in those incidents punished because they were worse sinners than all the others in town who didn't? Now, reason takes us funny places sometimes, doesn't it? Like bad things must happen to people because the people involved are bad. The truth is, sometimes bad things just happen. It's not a perfect world. Find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time and you can end up toast. 
A shop owner in Istanbul was captured on a security camera last month, stepping out of his shop for a smoke and a, and a, and a phone call. Without warning, the ground just opened up beneath him, swallowed him up, an 18-foot deep hole. And then, to add insult to injury, a vending machine that was standing near the edge of the hole tipped over and fell in right on top of him. Luckily, he escaped with minor injuries, but if you watch the video, uh, seriously, it looks like a Roadrunner cartoon. Right, look it up. Jesus uses some well-known uh, tragic local news as a teaching moment to, to turn people's thoughts to introspection, to self-examination. He urges them to repent. No, he says it wasn't about who was the worst sinner. It wasn't about divine retribution. It was just sad. When divine retribution was coming, God would send a prophet to warn people ahead of time so they could be ready. And they get ready by uh, confession, repentance. It's a reminder, though, that getting right with God should be a high priority in everyone's life because the end might be nearer than you think. You know, maybe a tower or, or a house will fall on them someday or you, or me, or the earth will open up and swallow us up. He's got a point. They just assume that both of those incidents were punishment for sins. Jesus answers them with a simple no, and then he goes on to warn them, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That part won't be random. While they're thinking about death, he reminds them that they best be thinking about their own. And he goes on to tell a parable about a fig tree that had been planted and cared for for three years running, and it still hadn't squeezed out its first fig. Cut it down, the owner instructs the vine dresser. It's wasting good soil. But the caretaker asks for, asks for one more chance. He says, let me care for it one more year. Dig around it, add some fertilizer. Uh, if it doesn't produce fruit, good fruit next year, then, then cut it down. Now both Matthew and Mark relate a story about a, an unproductive fig tree, too. Uh, Jesus simply curses it for its unproductiveness. And the next day when they walk by, it's, it's uh, shriveled up and dead. The earth might just as well have opened up and swallowed it. Luke's story offers a little softer touch, another chance, but just one last chance. You know, sometimes we need confession not just for the things we've done, but for the things that we haven't done. It's not a far leap to connect these stories to with the fruits of faith that you and I are supposed to be producing. God enabled us to be fruitful on the day we were baptized, when the Holy Spirit came into our lives and, and, and gifted us with faith. When we were born again, this time children of God, gifted, equipped with his, uh, not only faith, but we were equipped by the Spirit to bear fruit for work in his kingdom. And yet, I don't know about your fruit, but... Uh, you know, my meager pickings have often been bruised and brown and battered. Uh, certainly uh, not worthy to be served up to our king. All through the Gospels, Jesus' message to his listeners, even today, is repent. Confess your sins and seek a loving God's forgiveness for what you've done and for what you've failed to do. There's another part to our confession each week. Absolution. It's God's promise that your sins have been forgiven covered by the shed blood of Jesus. You don't want to miss that part. You know, sometimes we can be like the man who uh, once confessed to his pastor some very hurtful thing he'd done. And then he remarked, I've asked God for forgiveness a thousand times. And his pastor told him, you should have asked God for forgiveness one time. 
and then thanked him 990 times, 999 times for the good news that you are forgiven. David's cry in his psalm is hard to hear because it's so familiar to us. And don't miss how that it's bracketed uh, with praise to God. Verses 1 and 2 say, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. They sound like Beatitudes, don't they? And they are. Uh, Beatitude comes from a Latin word that means um, perfect happiness or a state of blessedness. And David ends his psalm urging his blessed listeners to rejoice in the Lord and be glad. There's no more perfect happiness than than knowing the cleansing waters of God's grace. That the brokenness and sin and death introduced into the world through Adam has been conquered by the new life and grace that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Confession really is good for the soul. Really good. Really. Amen. Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.